So this week, uh, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Uh, this semester, as many of you know, we've been going through the book of Mark uh, in a series called Questions and Answers with Jesus. And so we're looking at questions and how Jesus answers them, or sometimes how he asks them, and looking at what they have to say for us today and many of the questions that we have as we deal with faith uh, in the modern world and as we try to make sense of our faith within our lives and within our larger society and within relationships and all sorts of things. Okay, uh, So this week we're going to be continuing with Mark chapter 10. Uh, let me actually open up my Bible to it. That might help if we're going to read it. Uh, I'm going to read this for us and then we'll pray and talk about it. Uh, and at the end, as we have been doing, like we've said, in the spirit of questions and answers, we are going to... Oh, I forgot we have this over here. Uh, we are going to do uh, some Q&A time. And I'm anticipating this week will be a little bit more fun than the rest of the semester because we have uh, some fun topics for us. Uh, so let's pray and read this, and then we'll talk about... Uh, the questions that are asked here and what we think, what, what I think, uh, what the scripture has to say for us about our questions today. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that you would give us your spirit. Help us to understand your word tonight. Help us to understand your promises and the gifts that you've given us in uh, creation. And help us, Lord, through this to be formed more into the image of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Uh, so the question that's posed here in Mark chapter 10 is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? I want to give us a little bit of context about this, but first I'm just going to kind of tell you what questions I think this, uh, this answers for us as appetizers, and then we'll, uh, I'll tell you some of the context of this, and we'll, we'll, we'll discuss those. Um, first, I, I want to, we're not going to focus so much on divorce tonight. I mean, I think Jesus' answer here is actually rather plain, right? But the way that he goes about answering the Pharisees is really significant for us. So the questions that we're going to be addressing here tonight 
are going to deal with uh, authority or where do we find the truth, right? Where do we find how to live? Who's in charge? Uh, and, and even this, how do I read the Bible? Who's in charge? How do I read the Bible? It's going to be kind of a complex of questions, actually, that we're answering for our first section. And then we're going to move on uh, to this. What is biblical sexuality? And we're even going to talk about uh, our sexual identities, which uh, I hope yields some fun questions at the end tonight. And then we're going to move on and talk about dating. In light of our sexual identities and Jesus' teaching on marriage, remember not just divorce but marriage here, we're going to talk about what biblical sexual identity and ethics and a view of marriage teaches us about how to date. Okay, so first, you're probably going to be bored, and then some of you will dislike me, and then maybe you'll pay attention. Okay, okay. so these Pharisees walk up and ask Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So we've talked a little bit about the Pharisees so far in the book of Mark, but just as a like, quick reminder, they're, they're some of the religious leaders of their day. And in fact, uh, doctrinally, or doctrinally, if you're British, they have... Uh, what we would consider actually to be an orthodox theology, right? Like they at least have like on paper, they've got a lot of the right things about what the Bible says and teaches. There are some areas where they fail, but overall uh, they are actually what modern Christians would consider to be the orthodox teachers of their time. Jesus, however, is not a fan of them, right? Like uh, having the right answers on paper is not the same as loving God. And so anyway, the Pharisees are likewise not a big fan of Jesus. Uh, So they're constantly coming up to him and trying to catch him in what he is saying. So if you'll notice, it says in verse two that they came up and in order to test him, asked him this question. So what's going on here? Uh, Well, there are several uh, possibilities. One is that Jesus is near the area where Herod, who is the ruler of this time in in this region, is in charge. Herod is known uh, in history and in the Bible. There are uh, recordings of this relationship that he had with his brother's wife. And he actually divorced his own wife so that he can marry his brother's wife. Uh, John the Baptist got in quite a lot of trouble for calling him out on this. Right? He got put in prison and eventually beheaded, not by Herod himself, but actually by Herod's new unlawful wife. Okay, so it's entirely possible that the Pharisees are coming to test him and get him drawn into a political issue and get him in trouble then with the political ruler of this time. And then boom, they don't really have to worry about this guy anymore. It's also possible, however, though, that they want to get Jesus ensnared in a religious debate. There were several main interpretations of the text of Deuteronomy 24 in the Old Testament from different rabbinical schools or like schools of rabbis, uh, right? The the people who would walk around and uh, lead synagogues or kind of like their churches, their local congregations at that time, read the scriptures, preach on them, things like that. And so... Uh, what, what they're referencing eventually when they say Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away 
is this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And uh, one of the ways that that's interpreted is a little bit more conservative in their time. And it says uh, something along the lines of, um, if a man finds that there has been like sexual misconduct committed by his wife, he can send her away. But what has to be done is he has to, he has to give her like a written form, right? Some sort of uh, certificate saying that he divorced her, why he divorced her, things like that. Uh, some rabbis would interpret it more conservatively like that. Like there's got to be a really legit reason. Others would have interpreted it like this. It actually says things about like if she finds no favor in his eyes and stuff like that. And so they would interpret it like, well, that probably means if he finds a better looking woman, like taking it very literally, if she literally doesn't find eye favor, right, with him, if he no longer thinks she's pretty or thinks someone else is prettier, uh, then he can divorce her. And there were even schools of thought within uh, this time that would have said something along the lines of like, well, actually, if she just like breaks a plate or burns his food, a man can divorce her, right? And so with any of these answers that Jesus gives, the Pharisees are going to have some sort of fodder. They're going to have something to, to hurl at him, some sort of accusation. Well, why aren't you more uh, conservative? How do you just throw away the word of God like that? Or, you know, well, what about these people who are involved with it, right? They've got some sort of agenda. Basically, no matter how he answers, if he takes one of these rabbinical positions, they have something to level against him. But notice that Jesus doesn't go for one of the rabbinical traditions and he doesn't go the political route. He's often just too smart for the Pharisees. Go figure. He says, what does Moses say? So by way of getting to our first point, uh, I want us to look at this, that Jesus goes to the Bible for his answer. And I hope that this point will spur us on to consider scripture fully and carefully and, and see it as important and love it. Um, so on this point of, you know, our, our ultimate authority and how should we read the Bible? Well, how should we read the Bible? I'll, I'll focus on that. To answer this important question, Jesus goes to the Bible. In fact, he actually pushes other people to the Bible as well, right? He says, what did Moses command you? So I want us to follow his example simply with this. Real quick point of application. Read the Bible. Uh, there are a lot of trappings that go along with that sometimes, especially here at Liberty. We're like, you know, I didn't read the Bible yet today, so like I've probably fallen out of God's will or something. And that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying develop a love for the Bible. Read the Bible. Read it all the time. Bishop N.T. Wright was once asked, how should we read the Bible? And he said, how to read the Bible? Read it. Read it all the time. Read it backwards and forwards. Just read it. In it are the words of life. In it we find our Savior. And also in it we find how to live. In a very practical way and in a very God-centered way and in a very life-giving way. Okay, but how? 
Well, let's follow Jesus' example here too. How do we read the Bible? Carefully. Right? I don't want us to approach uh, the Bible and just start going, well, I'll just like flip open to a verse, any verse. I'll just put my finger down on the page and read, right? And then ask myself how that makes me feel. Um, Our feelings actually are important in how we engage with Scripture. Please don't misunderstand me. But it's also important that we engage Scripture carefully and thoughtfully. Uh, One really important way of doing this is within its context. We have to understand the context of Scripture. I'll plug our small groups here. If you're not going to small groups, please come. We've been talking about context all semester in our small groups. Right? We've been talking about Jesus in the Old Testament, and we can't just like pick you know, some passage from the Old Testament and say, this makes me think of Jesus in this way. No, we actually have to follow the pattern that the apostles laid out for us in the New Testament for how to reinterpret the Old Testament. But we can't just reinterpret. We have to interpret, then reinterpret, right? Like it, it takes some work. We have to understand what's actually going on in the context, both for the people first receiving the scripture, for the person writing it, right? Uh, what's happening around the countries, what's happening in and among the countries around Israel as they receive it, right? Like there's some work to be done. Okay, so what is the context here? Well, we've already talked about those rabbinical ideas about Deuteronomy 24, which says to write a woman a certificate of divorce if you're going to do this. But there's more context here, right? And this is, I want to kind of lay out how we read carefully the scriptures. So one thing to know about the Old Testament, and especially the Torah, the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible, is that within them we have these great narratives like Genesis and Exodus, but we also have laws within them, uh, namely the Ten Commandments, which have this eternal uh, abiding, ongoing effect, right? They are the moral laws of God. But also we have to recognize within their place that God gave the Ten Commandments, then he gave a whole lot of other laws to the nation of Israel. And so what we find are a lot of national laws, civic laws, things that help an entire society live out the Ten Commandments within their context. Okay? So what is being referenced here actually is one of those national laws. And we need to recognize a couple more things about it. It's not an ideal. Jesus isn't saying uh, Moses is just like cool with you divorcing your wife at any time. As long as you do the certificate thing, like it's fine. Right? Like that's not what Moses is about. As Jesus makes pretty clear by going back to what creation actually had in mind, or what God had in mind in creating man and woman. Um, so there's this national law that's in place here. And in some way, it's a, it's a recognition of the fact that there will at times be irreconcilable differences between men and women. Uh, I'm not trying, to, Jesus himself says what those may be. Right? Like the Bible actually gives us two instances of that, and those are the only two. Uh, one is adultery, 
and one is abandonment. Right? And you can find that one. You can find adultery in the same story in the book of Matthew. Jesus himself says that's one reason. And then the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says that abandonment is kind of a broad category for what he's talking about is the other reason. Not just for any reason, though. Okay? But this national law is actually uh, governing what should take place in one of these instances. It's not saying this is the ideal. It's not saying this should happen. Uh, It's a permission for their hardness of heart, as Jesus says. It's something actually, uh, when you think about it, it actually can protect the parties involved by giving a due process. Okay? So it's a national law, not just an ongoing abiding ideal for marriage. Okay, so you have to read the whole thing, all of Scripture. The whole thing, not just the parts. Right? Because we see that Jesus asks them what Moses says, and then they say, well, Moses permitted a man to divorce his wife as long as he gave her the certificate. And then Jesus has got to be thinking like, what else did Moses write? He also wrote Genesis, guys. Right? Let me take you back to Genesis. So we want to read it well. We want to read the whole thing, not just as parts. We don't want to just sit around and ask how it makes us feel or just find a random verse to read, right? Like there are ways to thoughtfully engage scripture. I, I don't mean this to be like a heavy handed. You've got to write like, like I was just saying, like you don't necessarily have to read scripture every day. Uh, you should make it your priority to meditate, it on, to meditate on it in some form. But I'm not suggesting like that you have to do some thing from this. I'm not trying to place a new law on you about reading the Bible, but suggesting that we read it carefully and that we are, and this is important, that we read it with heart, that we're ready to believe it and do what it says. We've got to be ready to believe the scriptures when we come to them and ready to do what it says. Okay, maybe you're here and you're a skeptic. I'm glad. If you don't think you can trust the scripture, or maybe you're here and you have some skepticism going on in here and you're trying to make sense of how that works with your faith. If you don't think that you can trust the scriptures, here's my advice to you. Give it a whirl. (laughs) Go for it. Uh, I don't want to sound trite, but I mean, look into it. See if it really is just a book of antiquated ethics. Or if it rests on circular reasoning. Right? Give it a go. Investigate it. I think what will happen is that if you give it real thought, you will be convinced that it is the word of God. Or at least be troubled by it. Which is probably just as good in the long run. I hope so. Or at least know what you're saying you don't believe. But you got to know. you got to engage it. Uh, if you'd ever like to do that, I'd be happy to do it with you. Okay. More on how to read the Bible. We don't just read it for permission. We're not just reading the Bible for rules. It does give us guidance on how to live, right? But that's not all we're reading for. 
That's what the Pharisees do here. And that's just not a responsible reading of the Bible. Moses wrote both of the texts referred to here. So we need to read with heart. We have to read with the whole of the Bible in mind and looking for God's intent and God's heart in the scriptures. Okay, so uh, on that other complex of questions, who is in charge? How do we find out how to live scripture? Jesus, son of God, Messiah, risen from the dead. You've heard of him. Where does he go when people come to him with questions that need an authoritative answer? He goes to the scriptures and he reads it with heart and he reads it well and he reads the whole thing. And that's how he comes out with how to live. Not just with a couple of proof texts. So Jesus goes to the Bible for an authoritative answer. All right, that tells us that his view of the Bible uh, was that it is authoritative, as if it's from God. So we don't know every why to all of our answers, but we do know who's in charge. And if we remember who did this and who was involved in this process, that it's Jesus, I think we'll find that the scripture actually is trustworthy. The one who is in charge is trustworthy. Let's remember that it's Jesus himself who is behind this. Uh, so let's look at the biblical sex ethic with those in mind, right? That Jesus is trustworthy and, and authoritative. He's God. So that should shape our idea of God as trustworthy, compassionate, and loving, right? And just again, to be straightforward, Jesus is in charge. So let's look at what he says about the biblical sex ethic. Okay, uh, first of all, the biblical sex ethic in keeping with reading the whole Bible and reading with heart, it's bigger than commands. It's bigger than just like 1 Corinthians 7 or the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery, right? It's bigger than just a list of commands. We often think of the Bible's sex ethic as a bunch of stop signs, right? I mean, isn't that kind of like, no, 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 not there. Like, you can't do that. No, you can't go there. You can't do that with your boyfriend. You can't do that with your girlfriend. No, this whole uh, sexual relationship over here is cut off. Like, you're not allowed to be attracted to them or something like that. I want to suggest to you that the Bible's sexual ethic is actually more like a painting. I don't want us to get caught up on the frames. I don't want us to get caught up on where it stops. I want us to have our eyes on the beautiful thing that God made sex to be. And by sex, I mean a big picture of sex, not just the act. I want us to have our eyes on what God intends sex to be. In this whole realm of what it means to be man and woman, what it means to relate to each other as such, but even what it means to relate to men as a man and what it means to relate to women as a woman. And maybe even what it means to relate as man and woman who are not married or dating. Let's keep our eyes on the art that God has made in this relationship and in our own beings. 
So because of that, I want us actually to think more along the lines of biblical sexuality rather than a biblical sex ethic. Because I think when we think of that, we think of a whole bunch of bullet points. We think of the list of things we can and can't do. Let's think about biblical sexuality. Uh, So Jesus doesn't just go to commands. He goes to history. He goes to this picture of Adam and Eve. Uh, Even a romance. So he he goes to Genesis, where Adam and Eve are created, male and female, for each other, in the image of God. One step down from human, this is, and this is what I'm saying Jesus is getting at, one step down from human identity are these other basic units of identity, male and female. So in the text here, uh, when Jesus says male and female, one, we should know that he's quoting from the creation passage in the book of Genesis. Two, I want to point out that he doesn't just use the words uh, man and woman in the Greek language. That would be andros or anthropos and guni. He actually goes to the abstract of man and woman and says arsen, male, not man, and thuli, female, not woman. These are abstracts, right? The idea, man and woman. And so Jesus is rooting biblical sexuality in the creation order as revealed in scripture. He's going all the way back to creation and saying like, this was the intention. Male and female were created for each other. That's what he's getting at here. Moses lets you have this because of your hardness of heart. But from the beginning, God made the male and female. He's got something beautiful in mind here. They're made for each other is what Jesus is getting at. Male and female are categories created by God, not man. And they were created for each other. This is the direction of a biblical sexuality. This is at the center of the painting of sexuality. That they were created for each other. Sometimes we get so focused on the prohibitions around sex that we lose sight of what's beautiful in it, right? Like, and if you think about it, it doesn't make sense to look at a painting and look at the frames, right? Like, who, who looks at a painting and starts going, well, like, man, this frame is just, like, way too small for the painting. You're missing the point of the painting, <laughs> right? Like, you're missing the art in front of you. So look at the picture of this beautiful thing in Genesis that Jesus points out. Adam and Eve, man and woman, male and female, remember these abstract ideas, they're made for each other. They have a direction toward each other. They fit together. And in doing so, not only are they individually created in the image of God, but they actually image God in a different way together, in a really wonderful way, in an artistic way way. Eve is made from Adam's body. Like, what's not romantic about that? Uh, I have this funny little book of Jewish quotations 
by Leo Rossin. I haven't looked at it in years. I don't know how I remember the author's name. But uh, he says about the creation of man and woman, woman was not taken from man's foot that she should be his servant. And she wasn't taken from his head that she should be his slave. She was taken from his rib that she should be close to his heart. Right, like there's something beautiful in what God has done in making us male and female. I think that's really special. Especially if we can continue with this, that it's only from the union of man and woman that children are made. And come on, have you ever held a baby? Like, that's just wonderful. Like, uh, my wife, Kirsten, and I, I forgot to tell you Kirsten is here tonight, and our son, Dylan. Uh, we have a five-month-old at home named Ruby. And just, like, you just want to eat her little face. And she is special, right? And she is made, well, actually, funny enough, she's not made from us, which is kind of weird. She's adopted. But we have two other children who are ours biologically. Um, but she, that can only be made, even, even in that case, right? Those, those children, uh, she actually was an embryo adoption. Um, she was made only in the only possible way from the zygotes, I think I'm using that word correctly, of a man and a woman. That's the only way for that to happen. And it's beautiful. Uh, So Jesus says here, don't divorce. Even if things are hard, even if they're really hard, because marriage is beautiful and it helps us reflect the image of God. It's an intention that's bigger than just prohibitions. There are exceptions to this, like we, we have already said. But in general, the ideal is not divorcing. Actually, sometimes we have to go through conflict to grow together, and that actually can be good too. So uh, let's move on. Uh, sexuality is actually ultimately bigger than that, though, too. It, it's actually ultimately bigger than like the marriage relationship itself, even just between a man and a woman. And so here, uh, maybe if this is just sounding like a bunch of fundamentalist blah, blah, blah to you because you are dealing with same-sex attraction or the idea that maybe you will never be in a relationship because you're committed to Jesus or you're trying to make sense of like why Christians believe this crazy stuff about sexuality when the rest of the world doesn't give a crap. Well, I hope you'll listen here. That sexuality is actually bigger than just marriage between one man and one woman. And I mean that like in the very literal sense. Not every, like my and Kirsten's marriage is not like the center of the world. It's not the center of what the ideal of God's biblical sexuality is. Sexuality is bigger than that because union between man and woman ultimately represents Christ in the church now and in the future. Right, like we have this special bond with Christ now as his people, which is represented in scripture in Ephesians 5 as a marriage. But then also in the future, there's the wedding feast of the Lamb. We're looking forward to when our bridegroom comes back, all of us. There is something going on that's so much bigger than one relationship, that's so much bigger than one act or even what we believe about identity, that Jesus and the church will be united, that he has done everything to make her his bride. 
Um, what I want us to consider then about that is this. How can that help if you are trying to make sense of your faith and the fact that you are attracted to the same sex? What can that do for you to know that maybe what you won't experience in this life, you have coming in a way that is infinitely better in the next life? This is admittedly hard. But what can that do for you as you walk the road of making sense of sexuality and faith? And what can that do for you if you are the friend of someone walking that road? Could it be um, that even if marriage is not in your future, even if that's not the case, right? Like even if you're not attracted to the same sex, if marriage is not in your future, it can still, could it still act as a signpost of what's to come for you. Okay, but biblical sexuality goes deeper and it gets even into identity. What does it have to say about the individual apart from relationships? That's what I want to get at, no. Uh, What is biblical sexual identity? Um, So I already mentioned that Jesus mentions the abstracts, arson and thule, for male and female, right? Not an individual man, not a woman, not the very, like, idea of just, like, a man and a woman, but the abstract idea, male and female. Uh, that's actually important, right? Because Jesus is saying these are God-given categories. And what I think we need to take away from this is that identity is not a restriction on us. It is a gift to us. Right? It's not about, uh, it's not an Eastern idea either of getting our identity from our culture, from our family, from our status within society. And these are broad sweeps of Eastern and Western cultures. It's not this Eastern idea of like getting our identity through being married to somebody or through our family's social status. And it's not this Western idea either of like, I have to make my own identity. It's actually just an identity that's given to us. That's the Bible's idea, that this is actually a gift. And so often Christians are, uh, we err, right, in making it sound like it's actually a restriction instead of a gift. We miss the painting. But when we get the Bible's, uh, sorry, actually, but before I get there, uh, rather than being restrictive, this can actually be freeing. To have an identity that is given to us even within these categories, this can be freeing. So I want to, I want to give an illustration for this. Um, if you garden at all, or if you've ever seen a garden, uh, you might know that cucumbers grow on a vine, right? Uh, lots of things do. Uh, roses also kind of crawl up things, uh, the sides of houses and lattices and stuff. I want to suggest to us that uh, we are much more like plants in this way than we think, and that we need structure to grow on. I, I would suggest that we actually become less definite by rejecting these God-given identities. 
Or the world wants us to think that we grow into our own identity and choose what we want to be and become this sharp point of definition about, of what we choose to be. And that sounds appealing in a lot of ways. But I actually want us to see that this gift gives us a structure to grow on so that rather than just sprawling out across the ground like a cucumber plant, we actually grow upward and grow fruit and, and live and be what we're intended to be. So this category of a sexual identity actually gives us something to grow on. It's a gift from God. So when we get the Bible's view of personhood, we see that sexuality is actually bigger than the act or non-act of sex, right? It's maleness and femaleness that's involved in this idea too. And so I want to talk about bodies for a minute. How can we define maleness and femaleness apart from bodies? In the modern debate of, you know, and, and I don't want to get into politics at all, and um, we need to recognize that there may be people here who are trying to figure out if they're male or female, right? Or what, what gender they do or do not belong to, or is it something else entirely, right? And I hope you guys can take a compassionate look at this like Jesus would. How do we define male and femaleness? I want to just ask this, who's to say your body isn't right? Why do we give so much priority to the mind? Um, so there is a maleness and a femaleness. And while it's hard to define and we just simply don't have time for that, because I've already talked about way longer than I thought I was going to tonight. And my wife just, mm-hmm. Um, it's important that we don't get maleness and femaleness confused with all of its cultural trappings. What we have created male and female to be within American society, within Western society, with whatever culture you're from or living now, uh, is not always necessarily wrong, but let's not confuse it with what God has given us. We cannot begin to confuse what God has created us to be with what our culture says. Okay? The identity given to you is a gift from God. Not all cultural values around maleness and femaleness are in agreement with this definition or these identities. Right? Like American culture is not 100% in agreement with maleness and femaleness as it's presented in the Bible. We need to understand that. Uh, you can like sports and be a woman. Crazy, right? You can be assertive and be a woman. You can like musicals and be a man or enjoy beauty in art and be a man. We have a whole lot of cultural trappings around all these things. Some of that has begun to change in your generation. Uh, but we, ha we still have a lot built up around these things, especially in Christian circles. But actually, sexuality is so much bigger than that. Those are just things that are in us because we're humans created in God's image. So the biblical view of sexuality and the body is that the body is good. Like, we at least need to walk away with that from this. Our culture wants to say that your body is good and we should all be sex positive. But if you feel out of place in your body, then all that goes out the window. 
your body is good. Unless you think it's bad, and then I'll back you up like it's the worst. But the Bible's view is actually that your body is good. You have, you have nothing to be ashamed of for being a man or a woman. There's nothing bad about that. There's nothing wrong with that. There are a lot of hurts. And a lot of pains that maybe go along with either one of those. Right? But there's no shame in being a man or a woman. These are good things given to us by God. So, um, there's a bigger sexuality in view here. Right? The Bible says we are given maleness and femaleness, and the body is good. And maybe a lot of what we see today, maybe the reason some of us in this room struggle with our sexuality or identity uh, is not just because of the prohibitions the Bible gives or something like that. Maybe it's because of a loss of hope because of the very thing that's being addressed here with Jesus. So much around us has just fallen apart. I come from a broken home. Things did not go well in our family. My mom comes from a broken home. Both of my brothers come from a broken home. And so this bigger picture of sexuality, it begins to fall apart around us, and each of us feels the effect of that. Um, okay. You're probably wondering how all this uh, has something to do with dating. This is the longest I've talked in, like, ever. Um, give me, like, three more minutes, and then we'll be done. I think I've, like, almost doubled our longest talk at this point. No, not, not really, but... Um, but maybe really. Uh, okay, so what, is, what does this biblical sexuality teach us about how to date? We've put a lot of questions into this tonight. How does this passage teach us about how to date? Uh, well, to keep it short, stop dating like you're in a mini-marriage. <laughs> dating is not mini-marriage. It's not fake marriage. It's just dating. Male and female are built for each other. There's this ideal that takes place, but the ideal is male and female being built for each other in marriage. The problem is when we begin to sort of fake that unity and intimacy without the commitment that's actually supposed to be there in marriage. And then we rip it away from each other by breaking up all the time right? By putting all of our hopes on somebody and getting way too intimate with someone, whether it's physically or emotionally, right? And we, we dump all this weight onto a relationship with somebody else and we feel like we're in marriage because we're designed to be in union with someone of the opposite sex. But then we just continue to break that apart and leave ourselves with scars, a side note to the main point. Uh, don't think that that doesn't have an effect on your body. Okay, back to the main point. Um, don't date as if you're in a mini-marriage. Dating doesn't come with the same sort of security that marriage comes with. You're not made to be male and female and leave your wife, sorry, and leave your father and mother for someone you're dating. Right? And yet, essentially, that's how a lot of us act sometimes. When we get into a relationship, it's just like all about that person. 
and we're going to open up to them everything and we're going to give our bodies to them and then we break up six months later. And it's only hurting you. And yet, there is this amazing way to experience the full biblical view of sexuality, right? Uh, as male and female, in relationships with the opposite sex. And it's this really, like, I'm actually presenting a new idea tonight. I'm excited about it. It's called being friends. <laughs> you can actually just be friends with the opposite sex. That's like crazy, right? 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 And so dating can actually just be being friends. I'm not saying you shouldn't date. I actually think we should date. Uh, I think we should just date all the time, actually. Go on lots of dates. Date people. But remember that it's to be friends. It's not to place all your hopes and dreams on each other. It's not to unite yourself to each other and then rip it away six months later. Learn to be friends with people, even of the opposite sex. See, it's not just as male and female in sexual union and marriage that we uh, image God in a special way. It's in community that man, human beings are created to image God. So stop dating like you're married. Learn to be friends with people. And eventually you'll find someone you want to get more serious with. Um, the import of this, of course, is, again, that there is a bigger picture going on outside of dating, outside of marriage, and it's, this, that, it's that idea of Christ and the church. There is something bigger here. So I hope that answers all your questions. Uh, let's pray. Wow.